I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 11. This morning we're picking up right where we left off back on July 3rd after a short summer hiatus. Genesis uh, chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 10 through chapter 12 verse 3. I was going to go all the way to chapter 12 verse 9 today, but ended up not having the bandwidth to do so. So uh, we'll continue obviously next week. So Gen- Genesis 11:10 to 12:3, Holy Scripture says, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood, and Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Ru lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's Word, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank You for the treasure that is ours in the Scriptures. And Father, we pray that You would instruct us, stretch us, transform us, and renew us according to Your words this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In Genesis chapter 17, 
the Lord changed Abram's name to Abraham. But until we reach that name-changing event in chapter 17, I want to honor the unfolding of scriptures by typically referring to Abram by his birth name, Abram. So, but you'll just know that we're talking about Abraham, same man. The Lord's call upon Abram is a key moment in the implementation of God's plan for the world. And this key moment is good news for all the world, but before we get to the beginning of chapter 12, there is some really important genealogical and historical uh, information at the end of chapter 11. And keep in mind that since the Lord called Abram, not only for Abram's sake, but also for your sake, that, that you would share in the blessing of Abram, then we want to especially pay attention to what God intends to do through Abram's life. And the, the historical background information, though sometimes we give less attention to that than it deserves, it's important because that helps us to understand the context of this real space-time world in which God deals with us. He dealt with them in the real world, and God deals with us in the real world. So we don't want to disparage this important historical information. So let's look at chapter 11, verses 10 to 32, and consider the fact that the world is marching on. Okay, that's kind of my heading. The world marches on in darkness uh, for verses 10 through 32. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and each of Noah's sons had, had an increasing number of descendants, as we learned in Genesis chapter 10. And now in Genesis 11, we get more detailed information about Shem's descendants, beginning with Shem's son Arpachshad, and running all the way down to Shem's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandsons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, extended out to one more generation, to Haran's son Lot. The, the history that spans from Arpachshad's birth two years after the flood to Abram's departure from Haran in chapter 12, verse 4, that's about a 400-year period. Arpachshad was born about 1,658 years after the creation of the world. And Abram departed from Haran about 400 years after that. Remarkably, you should crunch these numbers. It's just really fascinating. But Noah's son Shem, who stands at the head of the genealogy in chapter 11, he was still alive when Abram was born. Now, as I have mentioned before, and I want to mention again, the very fact that the author is giving us detailed genealogical information uh, which indicates when the son of promise was born and how long they lived, that's God's way of highlighting the fact that this genealogical line is really important. There are other genealogies in Genesis. The information about Cain's line back in chapter 4 has less information and then it sputters out. The information about Ham's line and Japheth's line in chapter 10, 
There's less information, and then those lines sputter out. But the Holy Spirit saw to it to highlight Adam's line through Seth in chapter 5, and now to extend that same line through Shem to Abram in chapter 11, because this is the line that will eventually lead to the promised Messiah. This is the line from which is going to come the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, as promised in Genesis 3.15. So the, the sons mentioned in this genealogy are not necessarily the firstborn, but whether firstborn or not, each of the sons in the genealogy is as Arnold Fruchtenbaum puts it, the seed son, the son through whom the promised seed of the woman would eventually come. Now, when we have looked at the previous genealogies in the book of Genesis, I've tried to make the point that what you should be looking out for in the genealogies is what stands out. And there's a couple things that, that, that stand out in uh, verses 10 through 26. Uh, I'll mention a couple of them eventually. Uh, one of them is the simple fact that Terah having three sons in verse 26, that stands out because all, for all of the other father-son combinations, only one son is named. Now, Terah, three of his sons are identified. And that's a, that's a clue to the fact, it's a segue to the fact that we're about to focus in a lot more detail on Terah's family uh, in, the, in the following verses, which is ultimately setting the stage for Abram. So I said, I said that the world is marching on, sons and daughters are being born, families are growing, the, the years keep rolling on, three centuries, four centuries here after the flood. But the world isn't just marching on. The world is marching on in darkness. And so I want to call your attention to seven things that will help us to understand that the world was beset by great difficulties. Number one, remember what happened in the days of Peleg. Peleg is Shem's great great-grandson. Peleg is mentioned in chapter 11, verses 16 to 19, but he's also mentioned back in chapter 10, verse 25. Do you remember? Where it says, in Peleg's days, the earth was divided. In other words, it was in Peleg's days that the Lord brought judgment upon the peoples who were gathered together in rebellion against the Lord at Babel. The Lord came down and he confused the languages and, uh, and spread people out over the entire face of the earth. Now, I don't assume that every single individual on the planet was complicit in the sin at Babel. The, the fact of the matter is, is that Noah was almost certainly still alive when the events at Babel took place. Remember, he lived for 350 years after the flood. But nevertheless, basically... All, in general, all of the nations and all of the peoples were complicit in the rebellion at Babel. Instead of obeying the Lord's command to fill the earth, the peoples wanted to hunker down in one place. Instead of seeking to glorify the Lord, they wanted to make a name for themselves. Instead of being humble worshipers of God, they wanted to deify mankind and build a monument to man in the heavens. And so Babel was a bastion of ungodliness. And when the peoples dispersed from Babel over the face of all the earth, what do you think they took with them? 
their ungodliness. And Shem, he had at least five sons who are identified in chapter 10, verse 22, and Shem's descendants were not immune from the rebellion and judgment at Babel. The world lies in darkness. Second, here's the second point. Even if Noah's faithfulness was carried on in his son Shem, and if Shem's faithfulness was carried on through the seed son Arpachshad, and if this legacy of faithfulness was carried on for a few more generations, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, I don't know. But the fact remains that when we get to Terah, whatever legacy of faithfulness there might have been, had been broken. We know this because the Lord spoke through Joshua to the people of Israel in Joshua chapter 24, saying, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Terah, the seed son, was an idolater. Abram was born into an idolatrous family. They worshipped pagan gods. And we learn an important lesson here. Noah was a faithful man who walked with God. After the flood, God made a covenant with Noah and Noah's three sons, but in the space of one to two hundred years, humanity had corrupted itself again in the rebellion at Babel. And with respect to the messianic line, through Shem all the way down to Terah and Abram, even here the worship of the true God, which had been exemplified by Noah, the worship of the true God had been corrupted and the true faith had been lost. And so from Babel, the peoples had taken ungodliness to the four corners of the earth and even in the messianic line, they had failed to preserve the faith. And we learn an important lesson here. Unless each generation of people is awakened for itself to the majesty of God, it will drift from the faithfulness of previous generations. And frankly, unless God graciously intervenes, humanity tends to go from faithful to unfaithful and then from bad to worse. Only God's grace can reverse the course. There was no human solution to the darkness of those days, and there is no human solution to the darkness of our days. Now, in addition to those two big picture details that I've borrowed from the context of our passage, there are five other smaller details we should pay attention to. So number three, notice that the human lifespan is decreasing. Did you catch that? The average lifespan of the, of the seed sons who were born before the flood, which includes Shem, he was born before the flood, excluding Enoch, who lived for 365 years, and then he was taken by the Lord straight away to heaven. The average lifespan of those 10 men was 881 years. Now, for the first three seed sons born after the flood, for our Pakshad, Shelah, and Eber, they lived an average of 445 years. That's a drop-off of almost 50%. And then, for the, for the following sons, for Peleg, Ru, Sarag, Nahor, Terah, and Abraham, they lived an average of 260 years, which is another almost 50%, a little more than 50% drop-off. So the average lifespan is shortening. 
The sons of men are like flowers of the field that appear for a little while and then they're gone. Death marches on. Number, detail number four. Notice that fathers have to bury their sons. And this is something that no father wants to do. If you crunch the numbers, you'll find that Peleg died about 200 years before his father Eber died. The first Nahor died about 50 years before his father Sarag died. And Arpachshad died about 60 years before his father Shem died. And you can deduce that from the data that's given to us. But we are specifically told about Terah's son Haran. Look at verse 28, chapter 11, verse 28. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred. Terah had to bury his son. Abram had to bury his brother. Detail number five. Abram's wife, Sarai, was barren. Chapter 11, verse 30. How can one participate in God's design to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth when the womb is closed? Detail number six. Terah's journey remained incomplete. Terah and his family lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. And by the way, there, there is some historical geographic and chronological information that I'm not going to get into today, but my plan is to get into that next week a little bit. Um, but for now, I simply want you to observe that Terah, he gathered his family and moved. Terah's intention was to migrate to the land of Canaan, right? Verse, verse 31, the land of Palestine, which belonged to the Canaanites, which we learned about in chapter 10. Genesis 11:31 says that Terah took Abram and Lot, Sarai, and they went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, but they never made it to their destination, right? They ended up settling in Haran. Uh, we, we were, it makes me think, you know, we were told in chapter 10 that Japheth's descendants spread in their lands, chapter 10, verse 5, that Ham's descendants had their lands, chapter 10, verse 20. And that Shem's descendants had their lands, chapter 10, verse 31. But for Terah and his family, where was their land? In Ur of the Chaldeans? Well, for a time. Then they migrated. Was their land in Haran? Well, for a time, but that wasn't their intended destination. And Abram's family would go on to move from Haran, as we learn in chapter 12. Where was Abram's land? And so the the seventh and final detail is simply that it seems like Abram is without a clear and stable homeland, which file that away because that's really important to understanding God's dealings with Abram and God's dealing with us, his pilgrim people. These seven details that we have mined from the context and text of our passage give us a picture of a lost, sin-laden, heavy-hearted world. From Babel, ungodliness spread throughout the whole earth. Shem's descendants failed to preserve the faith. The human lifespan was decreasing. Fathers had to bury their sons. Sarai's womb was closed. The migration plan of Abram's father, Terah, never came to completion. And Abram himself was without a stable homeland. At the risk of oversimplification, we might simply say, the world is lost. The visible church often fails to shine its light. The, the true church is always shining its light. But the visible church often fails. 
and people are hurting. That was Abram's world. That is our world. The world marches on, but it really doesn't march on, does it? It, it limps on. It stumbles on in darkness. Then and now it is right to pray, O oh Lord, send forth your light and rescue us from the darkness. And in the midst of this darkness, the Lord speaks to Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you notice how most of the genealogical information in chapter 11 says nothing about geographic location or extended family dynamics? None of that until you get to Abram's family of origin. Then we learn not only of Abram's father and Abram's wife, but also of Abram's two brothers and a nephew and two nieces, one of whom became his sister-in-law. And so we get a window into extended family and geographic location, first in Ur and then later in Haran. And so this, this background information helps us to appreciate the weightiness of the Lord's call to Abram. Go from your country your land, your place. Go from your kindred, your extended family, your relatives. Go from your father's house. Abram could not let his primary orientation and loyalty be to his father's house or to his extended family or to the places that he might have called home. If Abram was going to be a true worshiper of the Lord God Almighty, then his primary orientation and loyalty had to be toward the Lord. And at the most basic level, the Lord's expectation of Abram is not different from the Lord's expectation for us. Think about what the Lord said to Abram, and now think about what the Lord said to his prospective disciples. In Matthew chapter 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The call is always to find our life in the Lord and in fellowship with him and in response to his call. And all of this is just another way of saying, you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 3. That's the first of the Ten Commandments. The, this command to have no other gods means that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. The Lord must have preeminence in our heart and life and His Lordship and His commandments must govern how we relate to everything and everyone else. And if He says to pack your bags bid farewell to family and friends and hit the road to an unnamed location, the only sensible response is to trust the God who made the world and go. Have you discovered that the Lord alone must be your greatest treasure? 
Sinful human beings have the illusion that what matters most is their family or their household, their work or their wealth, their country or their team, their possessions or their toys, their fame or their future plans. But when God calls a man or a woman to be a true worshiper, a true disciple, a true son or daughter of God, all of those other things have to be set aside as the priority of your life. Some of those other things are good things, and the Lord wants you to be a good steward of those good things, but good things must never be the overarching priority of your life. What was David's treasure? One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that is what I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple, Psalm 27.4. David wanted to see the Lord's beauty and hear the Lord's instruction. What was Paul's treasure? But whatever gain I had in the past, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. As the song puts it, knowing you, knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. Long before Paul and David discovered this great treasure. The Lord was inviting Abram to discover it. Go forth, Abram, and you will discover that I will be far more to you than anything that your country or your kindred or your father's house could be for you. Notice after telling Abram to go forth to an unnamed location, the Lord made lavish promises to Abram. We've got to consider these promises. Notice the I will statements. These are the promises of God. These are the rock-solid promises of God upon which Abram and you and I should build our lives. First, I will show you. God promises to show Abram the land. The land is simply the land that is promised to be shown him, the promised land. Second, and I will make of you a great nation. God promises to turn the one man, Abram, into a great nation. And as we know, God causes Abram to stand at the head of a chosen nation through which God will bring the message of salvation to all the world. Third, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God promises to bless Abram. Don't miss the significance of this. God blessed Adam and Eve at the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 28, but in response to their rebellion, God brought all kinds of judgments and hardships upon the world. The ground was cursed because of Adam in Genesis 3.17, and Cain was cursed from the ground in Genesis 4.11. God judged the entire world with a flood in Genesis chapter 7. After the flood, it was a new beginning, and God blessed Noah and Noah's sons at the beginning of chapter 9, but Noah's grandson Canaan fell under a curse in chapter 9, verse 25, and in due course, the nations were up to no good at Babel in chapter 11, and God frustrated their plans. The world marches on in darkness under the long shadow of sin's dreadful consequences. Is there anywhere 
one might look to see the blessing of God upon the life of a man? Is there anywhere where one might look to see light shining into the darkness? Is there any good reason to think that a man in this world might somehow discover real hope and a promising future? Look no further than Abram. God promises to bless Abram, to show him favor and kindness, to prosper him and make him successful, to provide for him abundantly and protect him from opposition and danger. Further, God promises to make Abram's name great. Abram's name and reputation, his life and legacy will be of great consequence. God will make Abram's name great, not merely for Abram's sake, but as the text says, so that Abram will be a blessing. God will exalt Abram for the express purpose of making Abram a blessing to other people. And that leads right into the next promise. At, in, in verse 3. So here's the, here's the fourth promise. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As a result of Abram having been given a great name and having a great nation made out of him, he will prove to be a blessing to all the world. Isn't this beautiful? Remember what's going on. The whole world corrupted itself at Babel in chapter 11. And Shem's descendants ultimately failed to remain faithful. But now, God calls Abram and promises to bless him and promises to bring blessing to others through him. Not only to other descendants of Shem, but to all the families, clans, nations, and lands on the face of of the earth. Not apart from Abram, but in and through Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Of course, this does not mean that every individual is automatically blessed on account of Abram. In order to share in Abram's blessing, you have to be rightly related to Abram. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. If you bless Abram, if you humbly recognize that Abram is uniquely blessed by God, if you honor the God of Abram, if you esteem the work that God is doing through Abram, then the God who promised to bless Abram will bless you also. I will bless you and I will bless those who bless you. Let this sink in. In this dark, sin-laden, and heavy-hearted world, the Lord God Almighty who created heaven and earth will bless you if you meet Him in the place where He has promised to give His blessing. But if you refuse to meet Him there, but instead dishonor Abram and disregard God's work through him, then God will curse you. Life and death hang in the balance. Uh, Important little more than parenthetical comment here. The mere fact of claiming to have a positive disposition toward Abram does not make you okay with God. To truly have a positive disposition toward Abram means that you believe in the work that God is accomplishing through Abram and God's work through Abram culminated in the coming of the Messiah 
who laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin and rose triumphantly from the dead. Galatians 3.14 says that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Sometimes you will hear people speak about the three Abrahamic religions. And they're referring to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And of course, in a most basic sense, Jews, Christians, and Muslims would all claim to hold Abram in high regard. But but that misses the point. What matters is tracing God's work through Abram and through Isaac and through Jacob and Israel and ultimately through the Messiah, God's promises to Abram ultimately get fulfilled and carried out through the Messiah. And so Jesus is the one who mediates the blessing of God to all the world. Trust Him and you will be blessed with the gift of eternal life, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the riches of salvation. Now, all the work that we've done up until, very no- until right now, is really designed for these next few moments to drive home the reality once again that there are two alternative and radically different approaches to life. There really are two ways. One way leading to life and the other leading to death. And so I want you to notice a profound contrast between the people who attempted to build that city and tower in Babel and Abram who received the call of God. Look at Genesis chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, Compare those words. Put them side by side to God's call to Abram at the beginning of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see the contrast? The men at Babel represent the way of human sinfulness, whereas the call of Abram proceeds on the basis of God's promise. The way of human sinfulness reasons like this. We will come together in defiance of God's plan. By contrast, God tells Abram to leave land and kindred and trust God's Word. The way of human sinfulness reasons like this. We will make something. We will build something. We will accomplish something. We will do it. By contrast, God makes it very clear to Abram that God will do it. God will make and God will bless. Come and behold the works of God rather than the works of men. 
the way of human sinfulness, reasons like this. We will build ourselves a city and a tower, a great city that is secure and glorious and full of people. By contrast, God tells Abram, I will make of you a great nation, a great nation that is secure and glorious and full of people. Do you crave the society that man builds? Or do you, crave, or do you hunger and thirst for the society that God builds? The way of human sinfulness reasons like this. Let us make a name for ourselves. Sinful men want to build their own identity and manufacture their own fame. By contrast, God tells Abram the stunning truth. I will make your name great. It is not wrong for a man to have a great name. The question is, do you seek a great name as if it is something for you to achieve by your own strength and in accordance with your own agenda, which amounts to rebellion against God? Or do you humbly submit to God's purpose and plan, trusting Him to make of your life what He wants to make it? God makes much of His humble, meek, and faithful people. And He will clothe them in glory on the day of resurrection. The way of human sinfulness, uh, the way of human sinfulness sooner or later reaches a dead end. The builders at Babel didn't want to be dispersed over the face of all the earth, although that is the very thing that God had commanded them to do. But in the end, their city was emptied and they ended up being dispersed over the face of the earth. Anyway, the, man's, the plans of man are futile. By contrast, God promises Abram, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The builders at Babel wanted to build a tower with its top in the heavens, but their little project came crashing down. Abram, however, would have lasting and global influence. For through him and his seed, God would bring the light of salvation to all the world. So, with all of that before you, I ask you, in all seriousness, think about yourself as an individual, as a member of a family, as a part of the church, and ask yourself, which way are you going? Are you operating according to the way of human sinfulness? Are you living your life on the basis of your ideas, your plans, your resources, are you trusting in your own works, your own ability to build your life, build your future, your identity, your influence? Are you a self-made man? Are you part of a family that thinks much of itself but little of God? As religious people, are we preoccupied with our works and our resources and our ministries and our strategies? Religion is no answer to the problem posed at Babel. Are we busy trying to crank out blessing for ourselves? That is the way of death. Or have you discovered the way of life? Have you discovered what it means to sit down and let God's promises be spoken over you? I will 
show you my salvation. I will bless you. I will protect you. I will be with you. I will lead you in paths of righteousness. I will make a way in the wilderness. I will supply your needs. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you. I will make my face to shine upon you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will guard you with my peace. I will work in you and through you what is pleasing in my sight. I will build my church, not with brick, with living stones. I will incorporate you into my Family, I will display my glory through you, my people. I will bring you safely into my heavenly kingdom. He, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24. At the heart level, are you trusting in your own ability to work and build and secure or are you trusting God to work on your behalf and secure your future and bless you and keep you as a participant in the great family that God is building through Abram? Friends, don't fall into the trap of paying lip service to God's promises and God's faithfulness, but spending most of your anxious toil acting as if it all depends on you. Instead, learn to swim in the ocean of God's lavish promises. Make God's faithfulness your glad preoccupation. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand and let Him show you what it means for you to live as His handiwork, His doing. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and makes the sovereign Lord his refuge. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would perform and sustain in us the miracle of a promise-driven life, basking in the promises of God, resting in the promises of God, being having our heavy loads lightened because of the promises of God. Father, we pray that you would do that. And in doing that, that you would display the worth and the majesty of Jesus through us to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.